Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show this week, my colleague Izzy Kaminska of Alphaville takes the reins and interviews Robert Lustig, a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California. Now, Lustig is known mainly for his work on the addictive properties of sugar and its effects on the brain, but his latest book called The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeovers of Our Bodies and Brains, extends his work on addiction beyond sugar and into the technological realm. Lustig tells Izzy about his new theory, which is that it's not just junk foods and tobacco and drugs that make people depressed and unhealthy. It's also technological goods, things like Facebook and WhatsApp and all the rest. Here it is. Robert. Thanks so much for joining us here on FT Alpha Chat. For our listeners, Robert is the author of a new book, but you might have heard of him in a different capacity because Robert has for a long time been writing about addiction, but in the sugar sense. And his other very successful book was Fat Chance, The Hidden Truth About Sugar, Obesity and Disease. So, Robert, you you have a huge reputation in that other field. Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the new book and where you're coming from in terms of your background, really. Well, the new book is really, in a sense, sort of an extension of the old book. What I learned as I was researching uh, sugar and physical health, which is what Fat Chance was about, is that there is an enormous wealth of information about uh, sugar and behavioral health. In fact, we now have an addiction crisis. You've heard of the U.S. opiate crisis. We also have a depression crisis. And the question is, what role did sugar play? And as I looked into this question further and further, it became clear that it wasn't just sugar. It's just that sugar was the cheapest of all of the addictions. In fact, we actually are now addicted to technology and drugs, sleep deprivation, and many other things that are driving our brains to lengths that have never been seen before, leading to tremendous amount of unhappiness. The thing that really sort of tipped me over was in 2014, I was giving uh, grand rounds in psychiatry at an American medical school, and a uh, lady who was in charge of their outpatient recovery program was giving me a tour. She herself was a recovered addict. And she said something that was really jarring to me. She said, when I was shooting up, I was happy. What my new life has given me is pleasure. And I thought to myself, well, that's exactly wrong. She's got it completely turned around. And so I asked a few psychiatry friends. and They said, oh, yeah, we, we see this a lot. And from my own clinical experience in, with kids with obesity, uh, I had heard similar things to that as well. 
And then a couple of weeks later, I was talking to my sister-in-law who ran the help desk at Pillsbury, you know, popping fresh dough and, you know, crescent rolls and what have you. And she told me about a gourmet club that she belongs to where one of her friends had just had bariatric surgery and the lady said to her, you stay so nice and slim. How do you do that? And my sister-in-law said, well, I, really, I just don't eat when I'm not hungry. She says, eating for hunger, eating's for happiness. And indeed, this you know, dichotomy, this, uh, shall we say, mistake, uh, seemed to be so pervasive. And I knew the neuroscience behind dopamine and serotonin, the pleasure and the contentment neurotransmitters. And it basically just begged for this book to be written. So, of course, in your, when you're not writing books, you are a professor of pediatrics um, at the division of, I can never say this word, endocrinology at the University of California. But you say, obviously, that you have a background in neuroscience as well. And, but right. you have so many different uh, sort of, I guess, educational backgrounds. How did it all come together? Well, you know, all I can say is I'm a person who remains open to new ideas. A lot of people, you know, they form their ideas and they're very close-minded about them. I'm not. You know, my colleagues here at UCSF are big thinkers. Everyone here is interested in more than just their one little field. And that's how you make big contributions is by knowing various things. And we have a, a saying at UCSF, in God we trust, everyone else has to produce the data. So, we don't take anything at face value. And so uh, when something provides what we would call cognitive dissonance, that is you're told one thing, but you experience or view another, usually there's something else going on. And clearly with the obesity crisis, with the inability for anyone to be able to diet and exercise and actually lose weight and keep it off, something else had to be going on. And so in the process of investigating that, from a research standpoint, it became very clear that, uh, number one, insulin was the bad guy, not the calorie. We are doing our best now to try to kill the calorie as a unit of measure of uh, metabolic disease. And the other thing we learned was that sugar was the thing that drove that insulin. And, you know, all the data that has come out since has uh, supported that. In terms of this new idea, you know, it was basically dopamine driving the train in terms of uh, reward and pleasure and serotonin uh, being the contentment neurotransmitter. And the question there was, what's going on there? And uh, we are told that our new life, our technology uh, rife uh, society, and our processed food uh, consumption culture provides us happiness. It does no such thing. For our listeners who may not know your background on, on, the, on the sugar stuff, perhaps just give us a little summary of, of how you approached that entire sort of world because it was quite controversial what you were proposing versus the established theory. If I'm correct, the established theory was that fat was the bad guy, not the sugar. Well, here, here's the thing you need to know. The fat hypothesis was a put-up job. Two Harvard School of Public Health scientists, Fred Stair and Mark Hegstead, Stair was the chairman of the Department of Nutrition, Hegstead was his assistant, who became the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, were paid off in 1965 by the Sugar Association to produce 
two review articles that exonerated sugar and fingered saturated fat as the bad guy in heart disease. We have the paper trail. We have the smoking gun. And it was my colleagues here at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, who actually unraveled this and it was published last year in JAMA Internal Medicine. The bottom line is we've been led astray. We have been operating on the wrong assumptions. And ultimately, dogma is there to be toppled. And, you know, going low fat only made things worse, not better. And I think everyone on the planet can agree to that construct now. And the question is, why did that happen? And what was the real problem? And that's what we've been elaborating over the past five years. Processed food is the problem because it's high sugar, low fiber. Real food is the solution because it's low sugar, high fiber. But that's not what the processed food industry is selling. And is, is it comparable then, would you say, to the kind of tobacco industry moment um, in terms of what we were hearing, the real information being slightly suppressed? Or do you think it was more sort of unwitting? Well, I guess not unwitting, but perhaps people just operating under their own incentives, not thinking about the consequences. Well, it, it, I mean, it started with the Industrial Revolution, the fact that, you know, I mean, the pot still really started it because that was the uh, ability to be able to refine and purify it. That was in the 1700s. Obviously, alcohol was the big issue at that point. But the pot still allowed for um, sugar being able to be crystallized and then shipped around, you know, as opposed to sugar cane. The Industrial Revolution was very important in this because there in Britain, you had uh, factory workers who were only given a 15-minute break, and you had this uh, bitter tea coming in from India that had to be cut in order for uh, people to be able to drink it. And so they would have a scone you know, on the run along with their sugared tea. And so it became a diet staple uh, in Britain during the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, then, of course, we had World War II when there was rationing and people were missing it, as it were. And then, of course, with the advent of high fructose corn syrup and the low-fat directive in the 1970s, we increased our consumption enormously because the price came down. And people could afford to put more sugar into food and displace water, say in grocery bread, that's called water activity, to keep it on the shelves longer. And of course, you know, for the uh, um, hedonic effects, uh, I, I often, you know, say, you know, the, the perfect example of how this works is Lucky Charms. I believe you have those in the UK. They're magically delicious. Why are there marshmallows in the box? Because kids love them? Nah, because they're, uh, it's tasty and um, gives the product some color? Nah. The real reason is because marshmallows are cheap and oats are expensive. They take up room in the box. They can put less money into the box and sell it for more. It's a great business strategy. We know that there have been individual cases of subterfuge within this sugar debacle. For instance, uh, payoffs from companies like Coca-Cola and others to public health organizations to uh, suppress 
information that sugar might be harmful. Back in 2015, uh, the funding of this thing called the Global Energy Balance Network that was exposed by the New York Times, that was basically to get us to think that really the problem with obesity was a lack of exercise. You know, there has been very specific propagandist movements and motives on the part of industry to keep this uh, squelched and suppressed. You know, ultimately, you have to trust the independent scientists who don't take money. I don't take money. And my colleagues and I uh, have vetted 8,000 clinical research articles and distilled it into five messages for the general public. You can find it online at sugarscience.org. And basically, when you take the industry-generated data out of the mix, all of the independent data goes in one direction. So if it were really not a problem, you would see some papers being randomly uh, beneficial versus harmful, and that is not what you see. So we're pretty comfortable with the science, and it was through that understanding that we, un- we actually were able to unravel what the industry was doing. It is actually quite similar to tobacco, and in fact, some of the people are even the same. Your big insight is that sugar is harmful, but also addictive, right? So people are consuming sugar unwittingly often and not understanding that they end up overeating because of this sort of underlying addiction that makes them want to keep eating. And this is why you have, well, this idea that obese people are responsible for their own, you know, size is just not true because so often you hear people saying I just can't lose weight and people dismiss it but you are saying there is an element of truth here well it is true that 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 is the case the the question is is sugar toxic and the answer is it's like alcohol so a little alcohol is not usually a problem we have an innate capacity to metabolize alcohol up to approximately 25 grams per day. And it will do little harm. Uh, So for a woman, that might be, you know, one glass of wine. For a man, that might be two. And if you stay below your threshold, you, you know, your liver is very adept at being able to deal with that. But your liver has a limit. And if you go over that limit, then you start seeing problems. And I don't have to you know, explain the problems of alcoholism to you. Uh, The question is, does sugar have a similar limit and does it cause similar problems? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, sugar and alcohol have about the same threshold before you start seeing liver fat accumulation, insulin resistance, and ultimately Um, scarring and cirrhosis of the liver. We actually now have the data that shows that if you take the sugar out of kids' diets and substitute it with starch so that there's no weight loss, no change in calories, their metabolic health improves markedly and the liver fat reverses. And the insulin resistance that causes the type 2 diabetes and the heart disease goes away. And the lipids that cause the heart disease disappear. So we now can reverse the toxic effects of sugar by restricting it to a rational amount. And a rational amount is about 10% of calories, which is what the USDA and the uh, WHO have suggested. The problem is 
Currently, our median is double that, and there are some people who are quadruple that. And that's the problem. And the question is, where are they getting that from? Half of it's from things that you would identify as, you know, soft drinks, desserts, candy, cakes, ice cream, pies. The other half is hidden in foods you didn't know had it, such as tomato sauce, barbecue sauce, yogurt, hamburger buns, hamburger meat, uh, salad dressing. You know, the fact is that because there are 56 different names for sugar, and they use all of them specifically to disguise it, even if you cut back on the things you knew were a problem, you'd still be double over your limit. That has to be fixed, and it can't be fixed at a personal level. That has to be fixed at a systemic level. Yes, and in terms of the high fructose corn syrup, I mean... What specifically is so much worse about that compared to, say, other types of sugar? Um, Because you focus quite a lot on that. There's a famous, now very famous uh, YouTube video of yourself that went viral in which you kind of explain all these things. And and you focus quite a lot on the high fructose corn syrup. The, The studies that pit high fructose corn syrup against sugar actually show no metabolic difference. They're equally bad in terms of what they do long-term. The reason high fructose corn syrup is worse is because it's cheaper. Because it's cheaper, because it's homegrown, because we can control its production, because corn is cheap, because we have a state that is virtually all corn called Iowa, and it's uh, within our own borders, and we subsidize it, of course, Uh, High fructose corn syrup became very cheap and therefore provided competition for sugar. It's also, because they're free, the two molecules, glucose and fructose, are free, it's miscible, so it stays in solution, which is how we ended up getting chewy cookies, which uh, took uh, uh, America by storm in the 1980s. So because it provided competition for sugar, it brought the price of sugar down. And when the price of sugar came down, then all companies could afford to put more of it into the food. And as the fat came out of the food, it became even more important to make the food palatable with more sugar. And the companies realized, hey, the more sugar we add, the more people buy. And so it became a never-ending vicious cycle of addition of sugar, consumption of uh, excess processed food, and now we have chronic disease. So before we get into how this sort of feeds into your new book, on the chronic disease front, one of the things that struck me as very interesting from your your previous books and and documentaries is how this is having an effect on children and and that we're now seeing children being born obese, which obviously it can't be their fault, but also the impact on emerging markets um, where some of these cheaper sugars are really being peddled quite intensively. And we've seen dramatic changes in terms of the population's um, obesity levels as a result. We now know that birth weight is increasing all around the world. Four separate studies, Russia, South Africa, Israel, the United States. Over the last 25 years, birth weight is up a half a pound. Now that may not seem like very much, And some people might even say that that was good, but no, it's not good because the more weight you gain prior to birth, the more fat cells you have. You're not building muscle with that extra weight. That's extra fat. And the question is, why is this happening? And the answer almost assuredly is because of what mother ate. And we now have some data in 
humans, not just animals, I mean, there's plenty of data in animals, but now we have some data in humans, that the amount of sugar that mother consumed contributes to adiposity in children by age three. And this is exclusive of what the mother was giving the baby after birth. So it suggests that there is a phenomenon either called developmental programming or epigenetics, where you're actually changing the expression of DNA. You're actually changing the expression of which cells are proliferating prior to birth. And here's the deal. Fat cells want to get filled. And so it's not all that shocking that we are seeing this epidemic of toddler obesity, not just in the United States, but in many developed nations as the maternal diet changes toward processed food because it's cheap. In addition, we still have some obstetricians here in the United States that tell women to drink fruit juice during pregnancy, which I think is an absolute disaster for exactly these reasons. Tell us a little bit more about the fruit juice because that's it's advice that you give that is, I would say, fairly counterintuitive. Right. I personally have never done specific work on fruit juice, but many people have. If you look at fruit, so per, pretty much pick your fruit. I don't really care. The amount of fiber that's within the fruit is way more than the amount of sugar. And the fiber is what protects your body from that sugar. The sugar may be the reason to eat it. The vitamins are the reason ultimately to consume it uh, you know, in terms of metabolic health, but it's the fiber that limits the rate of absorption of sugar so that your liver doesn't get pelted with it all at once, you know, like a tsunami. By reducing the rate of absorption, your liver can metabolize sugar at its appropriate rate rather than being overwhelmed by it and then having to turn the excess into liver fat, a process known as de novo new lipogenesis fat making. And we now know it is the liver fat that drives the chronic metabolic disease. Everybody thinks it's the belly fat. Well, it turns out the belly fat seems to be along for the ride. It's really the liver fat. And the more sugar you consume, the more liver fat you make. So when you consume a piece of fruit, the fiber is self-limiting. You can't overeat fruit, really. I mean, how many oranges can you eat at one sitting versus how many glasses of orange juice can you drink at one sitting? And what the fiber does is by slowing the sugar absorption down, the fiber moves the food through the intestine faster so that the intestinal bacteria that come further down the intestine have a chance to metabolize it for their own purposes. Each of us is an Amazon rainforest. We have 10 trillion cells in our body, but we have 100 trillion bacteria in our intestine. Each of us is really a big bag of bacteria with legs. Now, those bacteria have to eat something to live. Well, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? And when you consume the sugar with fiber called fruit, you're actually feeding your bacteria. It passed your lips. So you think you consumed it for you, but in fact, you actually consumed it for your bacteria, which is a good thing. So fruit's not the problem. But as soon as you take the fiber out, and that's called juicing, now you've got a problem because now the sugar gets absorbed straight away, goes straight to the liver, turns into liver fat, drives insulin resistance, drives type 2 diabetes, drives heart disease, and we now have the data to show that that is the case. I have to confess that I, as a lady who's always conscious of keeping uh, trim, I have always struggled with my weight. And having watched your video, 
just eliminating sugar and especially sugary drinks and fruit completely changed my response to dieting. I mean, I was far more effective. But what I did encounter, because I was telling everybody about how wonderful this discovery was, is that there was a lot of resistance to the idea. People were exceptionally reluctant to accept that it might be sugar that's the problem. This is no different than any other hedonic substance, you know. When we told people that gasoline was the problem, how did they respond? You know, when we told people alcohol was the problem, how did they respond? You know, hedonic substances are hedonic for a reason. And if you tell people that there's a problem, you're going to get a backlash. There's no doubt that, you know, people said, you know, you're not taking my sugar away from me. Don't tell me what to eat. Get government out of my kitchen. You know, the question is, can society afford everyone's addiction? When the nature comment in 2012 came out called The Toxic Truth About Sugar, my colleague Laura Schmidt and I got a few very, very vitriolic hate mail letters. Other than that, uh, it's really been reserved to the food industry who've said, well, Dr. Lustig, he's been thoroughly discredited, things like that, things they wish were true. And they figured if they say it often enough and you know, loud enough, maybe it would become true. Uh, well, here we are. It's uh, five and a half years later. I'm still standing. And um, you know, the data are being uh, highly supportive of the uh, idea that sugar indeed is toxic, abused, and also a detriment to society. Uh, no doubt, no doubt, these data were part of the reason that the uh, UK uh, instituted the uh, sugar tax last year that George Osborne, Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced. It's funny because uh, we spoke at that time and um, I've never seen a government policy initiate such a crazed response amongst our journalists. So there were loads of emails going around, uh, mainly from my fellow male colleagues in middle age, they were all aghast at this idea that the government should tax sugar. It was symbolic yeah. of a nanny state. How dare they? Okay, the nanny state. Let's talk about the nanny state here for a moment, okay? I'm not for or against the nanny state. That's not my you know, issue. Here's what I think, and I would love your response back, Isabella. You know, we're capitalists. We let the markets work. However, the markets don't work for hedonic substances. Okay, they don't work for alcohol. They don't work for tobacco. When a, a substance is addictive but not toxic, we let the markets work, like coffee. Okay, you don't see anybody regulating caffeine, do you? And that's because caffeine has not been shown to be toxic. But tobacco, alcohol have both been shown to be both toxic and addictive and a detriment to society. And so... We then allow our political leaders to step in and help regulate so as to be able to peacefully coexist with this substance that is both toxic and addictive. The point is that for sugar, we have now demonstrated the toxicity, the addiction, and the detriment to society. In fact, we have a paper coming out in BMJ Open any minute that uh, will evaluate the number of lives saved and the number of dollars saved by reducing sugar consumption in the United States by 20%, which would be similar to a tax, or by 50%, which would be similar to adopting the USDA guidelines. And it is enormous. Let's just leave it at that. 
So toxicity, addiction, detriment to society, check, check, check. It meets the exact same criteria as tobacco and alcohol, and we allow those to be regulated. What's the beef with doing the same thing for sugar? Now, there may be other ways to regulate other than taxation, and I'm very, very interested and willing to talk with anyone about what those other ideas might be. But the concept that we need some sort of societal intervention in order to basically rein in something that is both detrimental to humans and detrimental to our society shouldn't be too big a jump. I think you make a really interesting point. In terms of, you know, market efficiency, the entire sort of economics behind that that theory is based on the idea of rational agents. Rational agents make good decisions in the market. But when you are dealing with hedonic substances, we're no longer really rational agents. So can our purchasing choices really be good for the overall kind of collective of, of the economy? I mean, this is a great moment to pivot into your into the themes of your new book, because one of the key takeaways for me is this sort of juxtaposition of pleasure and contentment and how the two are totally different. When you succumb to pleasure as opposed to contentment, are you really capable of making decisions that are good for yourself? I mean, tell us a little bit more about where this idea came from and how it fits into the grander scheme of what's going on in your brain. Indeed. So the book is about the difference between pleasure and happiness. Now, I will tell you, I've asked a lot of people for them to elaborate what they see as the difference between the two. And almost always, they come up with one. Pleasure is short-term, happiness is long-term, indeed. But there are six more. Pleasure is visceral, happiness is ethereal. Pleasure is taking, happiness is giving. Pleasure is achieved alone, happiness is usually achieved in social groups. Pleasure can be achieved with substances, happiness cannot be achieved with substances. The extremes of pleasure, whether it be substances or behaviors, all lead to addiction. There's nothing that drives pleasure that also doesn't drive addiction in the extreme, yet there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And finally, number seven, pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. Two different areas of the brain, two different sets of receptors, two different neurotransmitters, two different mechanisms of action. So like, why do we care? So what, you say? Well, here's why. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that excites and neurons like to be excited briefly. If you excite them long-term and chronically, they die. It's a process called excitotoxicity. So neurons have a protective, fail-safe mechanism to keep that from happening. They downregulate the receptor that was exciting them. That means there's fewer receptors to bind to, so there's less chance the neuron will die. So what does this mean in human terms? It means you get a hit, you get a rush, the receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush and then a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. And every substance or behavior that drives dopamine drives addiction through this exact same process in an area called the reward center of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. Serotonin, however, 
does not downregulate its own receptor. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter at the contentment receptor called the 1A receptor, serotonin 1A receptor. So you can't overdose on too much happiness. But there's one thing that downregulates serotonin, dopamine. So the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get. Then throw a little stress on top, which downregulates the serotonin receptors. And you can see how the seeking of pleasure because of stress, which is what our society now is, does everything it can to reduce our happiness and explains why we have so much atypical depression now in our society, which has been viewed in virtually every study of happiness there in the, US, in the UK and in the US. You can look at the Million Women study. You can look at the Whitehall 2 study. It's all there. So the question is, why is this happening? Well, the answer is because industry wants it to happen. What they've done is they've confused and conflated the concepts of pleasure and happiness together, telling you you can buy happiness if you buy this product. Okay? Perfect example, of course, was Coca-Cola's open happiness campaign. How about the happy meal? How about happy hour? And we can go on and on. Pharrell Williams' uh, song, Happy. Um, there, there are many, many allusions to this throughout all of marketing and advertising, and they're getting better and better at it which means that they're driving your dopamine system harder and harder, in which case you're getting more and more pleasure only to experience less and less happiness. And the problem is this is completely, totally, absolutely legal. It is well within their confines. It has been codified here in the United States by our Supreme Court, and this ain't turning around anytime soon. And now we have even a new uh, thing. Uh, it's called technology, our cell phones, Slot machine in your pocket, variable reward, specifically designed to give you that jolt of dopamine. And it's making everyone miserable. And the question is, what do you do about it? First of all, you have to recognize the problem before you can fix it. That's the point of the book. And then in the book, I go into the, shall we say, methods that people can utilize, that they've utilized for centuries to be able to actually tame this beast. The book is fascinating. It's, it's, I would say it's written for a layperson, but um, it, it is quite technical in terms of what's going on in your brain. Well, I had, to, I had to include the science, otherwise people would just not believe it. Absolutely. But one thing that I thought was very interesting is um, quite early in the book, you, you recount what is addiction and sort of challenged the idea, it was certainly in my head, that addiction is just substance addiction. But actually, the, you know, the formal definition of addiction can include other activities. Shopping, internet, cell phones, porn, um, you know, there, there, there's, there's a lot of them. Gambling. And in terms of, say, all these addictive traits, I mean, the thesis basically is, is that the profit centers in the world, the corporations, they understand our weaknesses and they are pushing those buttons on purpose, really. Indeed. The bottom line is I'm not accusing corporations of a conspiracy. I'm not suggesting they have banded together to inflict ill will and malice on the public. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that individual industries have learned through their own experience what sells. 
and what sells is pleasure. And they may not even know the difference between pleasure and happiness themselves, that they basically market their product as happiness, and it's not. It's driving dopamine, not serotonin. And in the process, we have become most decidedly unhappy. And as you say, we're getting more and more miserable. There's a opioid crisis brewing. Well, it's very much already there in America. It's brewing across other developed nations as well. How related do you think that is then to what's going on? And do you, do you think there has been a surge that runs in parallel with with not just sugar and all the other kind of techie things, but perhaps the frictionless lifestyle itself, which is certainly something that the architects of many of these systems are desperate to push onto us. Everywhere we go, everything must be frictionless. Whereas if you draw the analogy with with the fibre in, in the fruit, it's the inhibitors that kind of, in many ways are our saving graces, and we're getting rid of all of those. Right. Well, indeed. Let's put it this way. There are products that have been developed in our technological society that have been extremely valuable. I'll give you an example. A clothes washer and dryer. You know, those are, you know, staples of virtually every home. They are labor-saving devices that, you know, everyone needs, even, I would say, a dishwasher, too. These are things that are not hedonic per se, but are clearly labor-saving devices that are valuable to society. I won't even say no. However, uh, a lot of the things that have been developed recently have very specifically been developed to not provide just uh, labor-saving, but in fact to provide variable reward you know, basically like email, (laughs) Uh, smartphone, uh, dinging off in your pocket and you having to check it every, you know, two seconds uh, because of what might come in. And, you know, there are, uh, like, for instance, France has actually passed a law that says that employees are not allowed to check their email after 5 p.m. in order to, you know, try to, you know, bring everybody down off this um, technological Uh, high that they're on. You know, I think that that is actually quite wise. I understand why email is necessary. Uh, God knows I'm uh, semi-addicted to my email. My wife is not happy with me. My kid is uh, virtually a, a cell phone addict. And, you know, we tried for years to keep her from doing so. But we had to get her a smartphone because she had to be on Facebook because that's how they organized their um, school debate tournaments. So we have, you know, sort of bought into this idea that kids need cell phones. I just heard a story about uh, mothers smuggling cell phones into summer camp because, you know, they couldn't stand the thought that they couldn't communicate with their kids. You know, there's a problem here. So, I mean, one interesting thing that strikes me is, yes, absolutely, we've had amazing technological innovations in the past, and it's not the case that what you're advocating is a sort of form of Ludditism. No, not at all. We have to have, shall we say, um, an appropriate discussion about the issue. Yeah, and I think on that point, no one ever gave a washing machine away for free, whereas I think the interesting connection here is that so many of these new addictive products 
are not products you have to pay for. So there's no friction. They're giving them away for free. Or a lot of these platforms, I mean, the phone itself you have to buy, but the actual addictive apps on top of them. And I was thinking to myself, the only other sort of industry that gives away product for free uh, in the very beginning to hook you long term is is the you know dark markets the the actual drug, illegal drug markets that's infamous indeed indeed the pusher on the on the schoolyard uh, at the schoolyard you know gives you the, your first hit for free and then you're a customer for life and in fact we have data that suggests that the earlier kids get hooked the worse it is in terms of brain development. It's one of the reasons why teenagers are in such dire straits today, in part because they do not have the cognitive inhibition. The area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, our executive center, uh, in the book I refer to it as our Jiminy Cricket. It's the uh, part of our brain that keeps us from doing stupid things. It is the last part of the brain to mature. It's the last part of the brain to myelinate and doesn't do so until the early 20s. So if you provide hedonic pleasures and rewards early on without the capability of being able to cognitively inhibit and recognize what the consequences of that are, you're really in dire straits. And that is what we are seeing in teenagers today. I mean, what's interesting also is that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has a, a sort of a system where you go through, you know, very extended trials before you can bring products to market. None of that applies to the kind of information technology uh, side of things. So companies can distribute things and we only then look many years later to see if there are any negative consequences. There's n society doesn't seem to have a kind of check and balance on that front. So what do you think should be done and, and, and how, how best to communicate the costs of all this to, say, public officials? Well, um, we're doing that. You know, people have already demonstrated the loss of economic productivity, for instance, due to cell phone use, uh, the loss of economic productivity due to depression, atypical depression that comes from this. So, you know, it's both sides of the ledger. You know, there's the positive side of the ledger uh, that's uh, being affected. Um, type 2 diabetes is affecting the positive side of the ledger in the fact that People with type 2 diabetes spend their whole day in the bathroom peeing their brains out, and they're not doing their job. We also have multitaskers who supposedly are more productive, but in fact, when you look at the data, it's really smoke and mirrors, and they're really not very uh, more productive than people who unitask, and they have a much higher incidence of uh, addiction and depression. What was seen in 2008 and was chronicled by the um, Telegraph in the UK was the cocaine addiction uh, epidemic amongst the stockbrokers just prior to the economic downturn. What detriment that had on society because they couldn't feel anything because the pressure was so great that they basically had to, you know, do lines of cocaine or even inject it in order to be able to feel anything. You know, there is a cost. And the question is, how do you uh, monetize that? And ultimately, when you put the positive against the negative side of the ledger, will it force policymakers to take action? I will tell you, when I went to Mexico in 2013, before they passed their soda tax in, on October 20th, 2013, I met with the uh, uh, politicians, and they told me straight out, we don't care who dies. It's about the money. 
It's only about the money. So we had to show them how much money they would both make and save by instituting a soda tax. That was all they were interested in. But we were able to do that, and indeed, they passed it. Our BMJ article will demonstrate the same thing for America and how much money and lives will be able to be saved and what productivity will do. So we are very comfortable with the idea that this is the way to go forward. Let's have that economic discussion. But everything has to be on the table. You know, for companies or uh, industries to say, you know, we're exempt or how dare you, you know, uh, invoke this nanny state uh, mumbo jumbo on us is really defeating the purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. And certainly in, um, in America, where there is a history of pro-market, pro-capitalist sort of um, policy, it's going to be hard to persuade corporations that they are not necessarily operating in the interests of the public at large. How then can we tilt the framework so that corporations focus on this other sort of um, contentment factor. I don't know if you know, there's a there's a um, Bank of England official called Andrew Haldane here in the UK, and he wrote a paper about yeah. how one of the problems we're facing in the economy is the the fact that there's not enough patience. Um, we're all losing patience, and we need to, to have mm-hmm. more long-term thinking in the economy if we're going to yes. really adjust the productivity crisis. The bottom line is there's this thing called the Wall Street Quarterly Report. And every publicly traded company's got it. Okay, one company actually braved the, uh, the waters here. And I want to call them out for their, uh, for their courage. And it was Mars, the candy company. You know, Milky Ways, M&Ms, Snickers. Okay, sugar's their stock and trade. Yet they were the first ones to come out and actually support the United States Department of Agriculture dietary guidelines to reduce total sugar consumption. Now, that has to affect their business. Yet they were able to come out and say this, that we needed to cut back because they understood the effects this was having on not just health, but on the entire U.S. economy. And why was Mars the only one to do this? And the answer is very simple. Your listeners know the answer. They're privately held. You can't buy stock in them. They don't have Wall Street quarterly reports. They can afford to take the long view. And Fred Mars is getting old. You know, they want to be on the right side of this for history. Well, guess what? In the midst of all of the global energy balance network and the payoffs to public health officials around the United States, on February 23rd, Coca-Cola also agreed that sugar was a problem and that we needed to do something about it and agreed to the 10% USDA guidelines. This is one of the reasons that Coke cans have been shrinking from 12 ounces to 8 ounces is very specifically to try to at least in some fashion, at least put a, a, a step forward to try to limit consumption. And I applaud that thinking. So it is not crazy and it is not impossible that we could engage companies at a grand level to be able to do something to reduce consumption of hedonic substances. Another example, 
the FDA just three, four days ago announced that they were now going to regulate the amount of nicotine within U.S. cigarettes to bring it below the addiction threshold. Now, cigarette companies tanked immediately on hearing the, uh, this information, but the fact is, you know, here's another method for being able to try to remediate a societal ill, and it has to occur at a governmental level which means you know, government has to get involved in these kinds of decisions in order to level the playing field and get everyone to play. So, I mean, that, that, those are fantastic points. I mean, you often hear that the power is with the consumer. It's our consumer dollars that effectively you know, determine what corporations end up doing, and we can vote with our dollars, so to speak. But if we have been compromised, <laughs> as we've already discussed, maybe the power lies with investors and they can maybe tilt the playing field by looking a little bit further ahead and thinking, well, if this is going to boost social productivity, if it's going to ultimately boost GDP, it's going to boost the value of my stock portfolio in the long run if we solve these problems. I couldn't agree more. You know, there are many um, socially responsible uh, mutual funds that divested themselves of tobacco stocks, for instance. You're probably aware that Credit Suisse under the guidance of Stefano Nutella in New York, published two documents, one called the Sugar Consumption at a Crossroads, where they actually called for taxation in order to try to stem the tide of type 2 diabetes and increase productivity. And also Morgan Stanley modeled economic growth into the future based on a high sugar and a low sugar case. The report was called The Bittersweet Aftertaste of Sugar. And they said that in the high sugar case, which is what we currently have, by the year 2035, we would reach 0.0% economic growth. Now, who is that good for? Certainly not for anyone. So, you know, recognizing that we have a problem and what the problem is, is the first step to remediating the problem. You can't solve a problem till you understand it. And the reason I wrote this next book, The Hacking of the American Mind, is to get people to understand it. By the way, everything that's in this book applies to Britain equally. So I hope the uh, title it will not be off-putting to the uh, UK, uh, Australian, New Zealand listeners. I'm sure we all understand that America tends to lead and then we follow. Um, so what's happening there is more like a, uh, a sort of magnifying glass into what our future will be. Just, I, I also just want to touch on, because you, you have like at the end of the book, you kind of offer sort of advice on what we could do individually whilst before, before the investors take hold of their senses, um, how we can protect ourselves and, and maybe run through relatively quickly. What is the best thing we can do? Ultimately, it's all biochemical. Okay, biochemistry is behavior. Okay, that behavior is the readout of your biochemistry. And what we are seeing is we're seeing dopamine going full force and serotonin being tanked. So what we have to do is we have to up our serotonin and tamp down our dopamine. And there are four things that your mother taught you, and all four of them are clinically effective and proven to work. And we have the neuroscience, the neuroimaging, and the prospective clinical trials to show that all of them work. And I can sum them up. Four words, the four C's, connect, interpersonal connection, and that means eye-to-eye -eye connection, 
You have to actually see the person in order to be able to connect. And the reason is because you have a set of mirror neurons in your brain connected to your empathy center, and empathy is required for serotonin production and serotonin receptor activation. So you have to actually view the person. So visiting a sick friend, okay, as an example. The question is, is Facebook connection? And the answer is, not only is it not connection, it is actually rewarded as dopamine, and it is one of the things driving teenage depression today, especially in girls. Second C, contribute. And that doesn't mean contribute to your bank account. It means contributing to something outside of yourself, contributing to the greater good, if you will. And it can be volunteerism, it can be altruism, it can be philanthropy, it can be providing a good workspace for your workers so that they can be productive and happy, actually feeds back on you. There are many ways to do it. The third C, cope. And I can sum those up in three terms, sleep, mindfulness, and exercise, all of which up serotonin and tamp down dopamine and uh, and can uh, actually alleviate depression. And then the last one, number four, the big one, the fiesta resistance, cook for yourself, your friends, your family, because there are three items in food that have to do with happiness, two that up them and one that downs it. The two that up it are tryptophan and omega-3 fatty acids. Tryptophan is the rarest amino acid, comes in eggs, fish, poultry, omega-3 fatty acids in marine wild-caught fish and also flax. They stabilize neuronal membranes, increase uh, serotonin uh, availability because it's the substrate for serotonin production. And then the one that's bad, the one that sends serotonin down is fructose. Fructose specifically drives down serotonin as it drives up dopamine. Again, the hit of pleasure, but ultimately unhappiness. Well, processed food is low tryptophan, low omega-3s, high fructose, low fiber. Real food is all the opposites. Real food works. Sitting down with your family is connection, it's contribution, and it's coping, all the above. So my family sits down to dinner to a home-cooked meal every single night. I've got a 17-year-old who's got a zillion things to do. I've got an 11-year-old who's got a zillion things to do. And we all make it home for dinner and we turn the TV off during dinner. It's a great way to start. Exactly what my mother used to insist on as well. So you're right. It's exactly what your mum would tell you. But you, you allude to it in the book as well. But when you were recounting all those points, it did strike me that they also seem to um, echo very much what we might uh, connect to religious sort of ideology. There is an element of kind of religious wisdom that complement those, those points. Indeed, religion actually affects both serotonin and dopamine. When it affects serotonin, it affects contentment because of being the connection and being part of a whole. And it doesn't matter what the belief is. It's not like one religion has a, a you know, leg up over any other. It is the interpersonal connection that makes religion work. However, when religion ups your dopamine, that actually leads to zealotry and problematic uh, behaviors within religion 
this was uh, evidenced when we started treating Parkinson's patients with L-DOPA, and they actually would end up having religious schizoidal breaks because of the uh, uh, increase in dopamine. So uh, religion is a double-edged sword, as it were. When uh, used properly, can certainly up your contentment and happiness, and when used improperly, can uh, sometimes uh, foment uh, the exact opposite. It's fascinating, but certainly the the idea of having shared kind of community experience that that side of it is certainly something we we are reducing in terms of our atomized technological culture. We're not we're not having those shared experiences as much face to face. As Sherry Turkle, a professor at MIT who studies media, coined the term appropriately, we are all alone together. That's a very good um, way to sum it up. Robert, it, it's been a real pleasure in the nice, in the, in the good sense, in the contentment sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my pleasure, Isabella. And that is all the time we have for today. Thanks to Izzy for hosting. You can give us a call at 917-551-5012 or email us at alphachat at ft.com to leave us feedback. You can go to ft.com forward slash alpha chat to get show notes for this episode and all other prior episodes. Leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly at iTunes. We really appreciate this, and it helps other people find out about the show. Izzy is on Twitter at Izzy Kaminska. Thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next Friday for another episode of Alpha Chat. Alpha Chat.